0: West Podcast proudly presents The Battle of Beecher Island, Part 2. I reached over, grabbed the whiskey bottle, and poured the remaining liquor into Jack's glass. The sight of the whiskey had calmed Jack. He took the glass in his hand and drank rapidly, his head thrown back, and his Adam's apple running like a small animal beneath the gray fur of his throat. When he finished the drink, he hunched himself back in his chair. "'and spoke to his tale. "'For the next hour or so, matters in our immediate vicinity "'were comparatively quiescent,' said Jack. "'The enemy constantly kept up a steady fire against us, "'but only returned by the scouts when they saw an opportunity "'to use their cartridges effectively. "'The Indians, at length, began to perceive this, for as it was, "'they were playing a losing game. "'Our men were now better protected than the Indians were.' The consequence was that many a badly wounded brave fell to the rear, while very few of our people were being hurt. At this juncture, the last of our horses went down. I then heard one of the Indians shout out in English, "'There goes the last damned horse anyhow!' Jack paused, took a moment for a shot of whiskey, and continued. It was then that the second charge began to form in the lower valley. Their chief, Roman Nose, would lead this charge." From a distance, I noticed Roman Nose getting ready for the attack. I saw him put on his war bonnet, the finest ever worn by any Plains chieftain. Roman Nose, I questioned. Is that because he had a hooked nose, I asked. Yes, Jack replied. Roman Nose was a well-known warrior among the American military, and engaging him in battle was considered prestigious. You and your unit of scouts must have been very proud, I said. Jack hesitated at my question, thought back, then continued. The Indians' first desperate charge was successfully met, and that raid was driven back. A lull now followed. The hiatus gave us time to count the dead and care for the wounded. Fred H. Beecher, second in command, was killed at the first grand charge made by the Indians. Forsyth had been shot several times, and Dr. Moores was killed at the same time. "'How bad was Forsythe's injury?' I asked. "'Well, Forsythe was the first to be hit by a band of sharpshooting warriors "'who lined the banks of the river,' replied Jack. "'They poured a heavy burden of gunfire on our island position. "'While Forsythe issued orders for us to dig in, "'a bullet struck him in the right thigh. "'A short time later, another shot him in the left leg, "'shattering the bone just below the kneecap. "'That's a shame about Dr. Moore's getting killed,' "'I said.' How did Dr. Moores get his? Well, when Forsyth was wounded the second time, he was moved by two of our men to a hole occupied by Dr. Moores at the west end of the island, explained Jack. As the doctor attempted to minister to Forsyth's wounds, he himself was hit squarely in the forehead by an Indian sharpshooter. It was indeed a sad affair, for Moores, I was told, lay mortally wounded for three days before he finally succumbed without ever regaining consciousness. That is a sad state of affairs, I replied. Now you had mentioned you and your unit was preparing for a second charge. Yes, from the east end of the island, separated from our unit, I could see Grover looking through his field glass, continued Jack as a glimmer of excitement appeared in Jack's eyes. Forsythe, now laying in a large hole behind Grover, continuing issuing orders through to Grover, who yelled out commands to hold off the next charge. I looked in the same direction as Grover and observed a band of warriors. The warriors assembled around someone who talked and acted as if he had taken command. Then, waving his hand in our direction, he turned his horse's head toward us at the mention of command. They broke at once into a full gallop, heading straight for the foot of the island. I was right in my surmise. We were to be annihilated by being shot down as they rode over us. What about Roman Nose? I asked. It was told to me by some of the old-timers that Nose had a particular war medicine, a decorated shield, a special paint, an amulet which would protect him in battle. Well, to some degree, that's correct, responded Jack. Nose's war medicine was a special war bonnet that featured a single buffalo horn and a long tail of red and black eagle feathers. I was told that his war medicine gave an Indian chief unflinching faith in protective power in battle, I said. To tell you the truth, I believe this protective power must have been in Romanose's bonnet, replied Jack. I think he believed that as long as he wore the bonnet and adhered to a strict sect of rules of conduct, he would possess a hypnotic power over his enemies and be immune to bullets. What did Romanose look like when he made this gallant ride against your scouts, I asked. "'As Roman Nose dashed gallantly forward "'and swept into the open at the head of his superb command, "'he was the very beau ideal of an Indian chief,' declared Jack. "'He was mounted on a large, clean-limbed chestnut horse "'that he sat well forward on his bareback charger. "'His knees were passing under a horsehair lariat "'that twice loosely encircled the animal's body. "'He grasped his horse's bridle in his left hand, "'which was closely wound in its flowing mane. "'The chief clutched his rifle at the guard,' the butt of which lay partially upon and across the animal's neck. At the same time, the barrel of the gun, crossing diagonally in front of his body, rested slightly against the hollow of his left arm, leaving his right hand free to direct the course of his men. He was a man over six feet and three inches in height, beautifully formed and, save for a crimson silk sash, knotted around his waist and his moccasins on his feet, entirely naked. His face was hideously painted in alternate red and black lines, while his head was crowned with a magnificent war bonnet. I could see that just above his temples, and curving slightly forward, stood up two short black buffalo horns, while its ample length of eagle feathers and heron's plumes trailed widely on the wind behind him. He rode swiftly on at the head of his charging warriors in all his brutal strength and grandeur. Romanose proudly rode that day, a perfect type of a savage warrior. It may be my lot to see. I saw him turn his face for an instant toward the women and children of the United Tribes who stood by the thousands. The onlookers of the tribe watched the fight from the low bluffs crest from the river's bank. This is when Roman Nose raised his right arm and waved his hand with a royal gesture. The tribe answered their wild cries of rage and encouragement as he and his command swept down upon us. Roman Nose, again, faced squarely towards us where we lay, he drew his body to its full height and shook his clenched fist defiantly at us. He then threw back his head and glanced skyward while striking the palm of his hand across his mouth and gave tongue to a war cry, a war cry I'd never heard equaled in power and intensity. Scarcely had its echoes reached the riverbank when it was caught up by each one of the charging warriors with an energy that baffles description. The Indians answered back with blood-curdling yells of exultation and prospective vengeance by the women and children on the river's bluffs and by the Indians who lay in ambush around it. On they came at a swinging gallop. The war party rendered the air with wild war whoops. I witnessed each warrior in all his bravery of war paint, adorned in long, braided scalp locks, tipped with eagle feathers. The charging warriors, each of them stark naked but for their cartridge belts and moccasins. They kept their line almost perfectly, holding a front of about sixty men. They all rode bareback with only loose lariats about their horses' bodies about a yard apart, and with a depth of six or seven ranks. The advancing horde formed together with a compact body of massive fighting strength, an almost resistless weight. Boldly they rode, and well with their horses' bridles in their left hands, while with their right... They grasped their rifles at the guard and held them squarely in front of themselves, resting lightly upon their horses' necks. You must have been surprised by this splendid exhibition of pluck and discipline, I said. That is to put it mildly, responded Jack. To put it further, for an instant or two, I was fairly lost in admiration of this glorious charge. The lapse of time was soon interrupted by Grover, who yelled at me to pay attention. Grover ordered Peter Trudell, Chauncey Whitney, and I to go to the east end of the embankment. The five of us were caught running low among the cottonwoods when Roman Nose charged up the embankment, arriving before we did. Roman Nose, the old Indian chief, was within 30 yards of the other four scouts and me when I observed the spear he held fall from his hand. I looked back over my shoulder to see who had made the shot. A man by the name of Chauncey Whitney must have seen Roman Nose coming up the embankment. "'Whitney's rifle barrel smoked from the spent round. "'I'll bet that Whitney soldier got a medal for that shot he made,' I exclaimed. "'Did you see Roman Nose fall to his death?' "'I looked back in the direction of Roman Nose,' replied Jack. "'His body was in the act of falling from his pony "'when the shouting warriors caught him and carried him from the field. "'Within hours, over half of our troops were dead or wounded. "'Forsythe was desperately wounded, "'one ball shattering the left foot and ankle.' another inflicting a severe flesh wound in his thigh. A third struck him in the forehead, ranging up and back, leaving him wholly unconscious for one full hour. This sounds as if you were in a desperate situation, I said. Yes, replied Jack. After a day of fighting, Forsyth determined that the only course of action would be to send two of his men for reinforcements. The closest reinforcements were Fort Wallace, a 120-mile journey through Indian-infested lands. Forsythe must have thought at the time it was best to call for both the youngest and oldest of the group, so he selected Pierre Trudeau and me to volunteer for a clandestine life-or-death mission. We made a good pair. I spoke Sioux, as well as Comanche in Spanish, while Trudeau understood Cheyenne, allowing at least one of us to converse with any likely challengers. We departed a little after midnight on September 18th, walking backward in our stocking feet. You must have been trying to fool the Indians, I said. That's right, responded Jack. We wanted to make the Indians believe that moccasins made our tracks. Trudeau and I were forced to make our way through the hostile territory under cover of darkness, laying low throughout the daylight hours. Once, we had to quickly conceal ourselves from the view of approaching warriors by crawling inside a buffalo carcass. The animal's skeleton was intact and retained its dried hide. But as we lay silently upon this impromptu hiding place, lousy luck prevailed, as I heard a rattling sound fill the carcass in which we took refuge. My eyes fell to the rattlesnake, and my surroundings vanished from my mind. At that moment, there was no past or future. Every capacity of my brain was focused on the reptile before me. The snake's steel-green eyes took in my form, selecting possible places to bite. The rattler slithered up within inches of our faces. That's when I dispatched the serpent by shooting a well-aimed stream of tobacco juice directly into the snake's head. That was an extraordinary feat straight out of the pages of a dime novel, I said. What happened after you escaped near death with that rattler? After the Indians had passed by, the trouble continued. Under duress from the double encounter with death, my partner Trudeau apparently lost control of his senses, commencing to sing and discharge his rifle before I was able to calm him down. "'What do you mean Trudeau lost control of his senses?' I asked. "'Did that rattler give him such a scare it caused bad medicine to overtake his mind?' "'I'm not sure,' replied Jack. "'Maybe it was the entire experience that caused him to go stir-crazy. "'All I remember is that it come on like a thunderbolt cracking the sky. "'This craziness stole into Trudeau's mind like a deranged thief.' taken what was important to him, had new dangerous ideas. This crazy acting fool seeded a new personality that muddled up the rest. How'd you make it back with one crazy man at your side, I asked. Toward the end of four days of hardship, said Jack. Trudeau and I reached the Denver stage route and encountered a Mexican in a two-horse buggy. We asked him to drive us to Wallace. When the Mexican refused, we pointed our Spencers at his head. By sundown the same day, we reached the fort. The rescue of Forsyth's men in what became known as the Battle of Beecher Island made my name well known across the plains. It was well into the night when Stillwell finished his story, the saloon now alive with roughs and loud drunkenness. That did not seem to bother the sleeping man next to me as his snores rumbled the rafters above me. I nodded a good evening to my new friend Jack. I ventured over to the hotel where I slept peacefully into the next morning. The next day, after early morning breakfast, I met up with Stilwell. He introduced me to Lieutenant Pepoon in charge of the scouts, and after introductions, I applied for a job. The lieutenant, with light complexion, gray eyes, and dark hair, quizzed me closely to learn of my fitness. I had told him about my service and the cavalry arm of the union service, He was well pleased and told me he'd take me, telling me where I could get my meals and where to sleep. In just a short period of time, I was loaded up in a wagon headed for Fort Hayes to be trained as an Indian scout in the 7th Cavalry. Trails, Forts, Treaties, and Indian Wars offers quintessential depictions of the early Kansas Trails from historical accounts and individual experiences. The author describes what it was like to travel along the Santa Fe Trail as a bullwhacker, Indian fighter, and freighter. The book is complete with ten chapters providing accounts of the early Cheyenne Indian culture and Kansas westward expansion, from the earliest conflicts to establishing military forts along the trails. This book features legendary figures from both sides, including Roman Nose and Jack Stilwell at the Battle of Beecher Island, and Private Peck, and 1st Lieutenant J.E.B. Stewart in the Solomons Fork Battle. The essays and short stories are formatted in chronological history, originating in 1857 and ending in 1868, covering the inception of the Central Plains Indian Wars during the Kansas expansion. Michael King relies on primary Kansas Historical Society reference documents to reveal the Indian depredation claims, giving the reader a more extensive understanding of the horrors of Indian incursions, especially when experienced by new settlers to the region. Trails, Forts, Treaties, and Indian Wars is based on true accounts in early Kansas history. The book is narrated by Brad Smalley, and you can play the audio version of the book by scanning the QR code below each chapter. Trails, Forts, Treaties, and Indian Wars is now on sale at Amazon.com.